You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We're the Isles, the projectionist has Smicha. We're here, I'm Avram Kivlevich, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolokowski, and we're here to darshan about old movies and vintage TV. We're talking old today, I know, Yitzhak, you've got some real oldies uh, to start out with. So what are you suggesting might be uh, an incredible watch uh, for someone out there, maybe something he's not aware of, and perhaps there's some message behind it as well. What's your first choice for tonight? Well, both of these movies that I'm going to suggest have some trick photography, but the, the Buster Keaton was, I think, really the superior of the the great three uh, silent, you know, comedians of of Chaplin, Keaton, and and uh, Lloyd. I think Keaton was really the uh, he was the evil. He was the, he was the, he was the, the evil. Of the three. Yeah, he just he didn't have Hatzlacha the way that 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 Chaplin did, but then Chaplin lost out because of the politics and and uh, and Lloyd was great in his own way. All three of them were great. I'm not saying one any of them were bad, but but there was something about Keaton that he managed and I think it might be my favorite Keaton short was The Playhouse. 1921, it's a 22-minute short. You know, all of these silent movies, they're in public domain, so they're very easy to find. Um, streaming on any number of places. It might be better to try to find a good print, but there you can definitely find a, an old print uh, that's that's not so clear, public domain print. And he uh, is has this dream where he is pretty much... Uh, so he's actually... He's like... he, he played the whole show and he was also all the, the audience. And at one point, one of the audience... Uh, members says well this you know they, they look at the program and it says buster keaton and this that buster keaton is pretty much everyone and then the audience member uh turns to a woman next to him who's i think also him and said that this fellow keaton seems to be the whole show and that was kind of the way that he did it with with really incredible amount you know uh, long before uh patty duke show where she played two different characters here he played 20 different characters Oh come on, oh, the Patty okay. Duke! Look, you, you can't mention the Patty Duke show and Buster Keaton in the same breath, okay? <laughs> the Patty Duke show, other than this, other than the theme song, and Patty yeah. was a very talented actress. There's no question about it. But yeah. come on, every time she turned around, you knew it was some other actress, right? Every right. time, every time she talked to uh, her cousin from England, or 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 she was the cousin from England talking to to Patty, you could tell that you know this was some other some other woman that they 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 like it was always shot from the back you know it, it, it was almost it was the trick photography i mean keaton was the one who invented uh the, he no he invented what trick photography meant he pushed the envelope consistently uh and and that is uh incredible that he could actually i think there there's frontal shots where he was actually able to splice all the uh the, the cells together to make yeah, it not- seem not right. only that, but they, but the doing acrobatics, working off one another, in just an incredible, incredible. Uh, right, because you know, not only did he have to do his own stunts, which he and Harold Lloyd and Chaplin all did, but he had to actually had to synchronize them, uh, that they should act as if they were all because he did them all, and then he had to r- stitch it all back together. In Twenty-one minutes. It probably took him a year 
to, to create. Yeah, I mean, it's the same type of thing that, you know, uh, even though it's a, a very different type of uh, movie, but, you know, Harryhausen, who was a great uh, stop motion, great stop motion uh, uh, animator, he would train um when like Kerwin Matthews was was uh dueling with a skeleton or something they had to choreograph it you know ahead of time with an actor and then had to remember the moves and then and then do it without anyone there so then they could insert the animated skeleton fighting him it was this same type of thing where he was uh, working against himself instead yeah, okay, of... Okay, uh, yeah, but of course, Ray Harryhausen was doing this, what, in the 40s and 50s, and this was happening in yeah. 1921. So, yeah. you know, Keaton is, he's from, he he's from the, he's the Rishon. He's, he's one of the Gaonim, really. Yeah, he way. was the pioneer who made, who made all these other things possible later. And, right, and, 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 and he, not only poking fun at, at, at himself, but also, which of course, you know, that was his stock and trade, but did you, do you think, uh, um, a young person of today would find the film other than the um, the uh, eye-popping uh, technical virtuosity. Is there a message? Is it funny? Is the type of thing that the a person could really, you know, other than you know, chuckle a little bit? Or do you think it you know, is it more just to appreciate as an ancient work of art? Something that is timeless. That that you know, someone. It's not. It's not like you know. We're it's, we're not talking about you know some anachronistic, you know some of these shows that you know might have uh, you know certain things that are offensive to people's sensibilities today. But but more than that, I, I think you know there is a certain message because in the end the whole thing winds up being a dream. So it you know in our last in our previous podcast we were talking about <laughs> vision that he's the whole show. He's He's not only the star of the show, he's every star of the show. He is the whole thing. And then he wakes up and it's all a dream. So there's there's a shtickle musri to get out of that too. I you know, the, the, I, you know. I think what you're trying to what I'm hearing from you is that um you know people dream about being up there on stage, but every everything about it, it's he's not just dreaming that he's an actor. He's his world is so self-centered. <laughs> that there isn't anyone else except him in it, you know, right. and, which shows you, you know, how, in a way, how empty it is. Um, you know, if, if our daydreams, you know, can spur us to communal activity, uh, to something, even if it's artistic activity uh, with, with others, it's one thing, but where, yeah. where our dreams and our, and our, and our fantasies are so self-centered that it's only us, and as you say, it really becomes self-defeating. And I guess, you know, Keaton, one thing I could tell you about Keaton, I, I heard Keaton, again, I'm a big fan of Keaton and I, I, I consider him, uh, you know, even though there's obviously a cult of, of movie critics that really, you know, consider him you know, the tops, he still is mostly underappreciated in, by today's audience. I'll say that, uh, and I, I've always told people to try to, uh, there's an American master's program where they put Keaton into perspective, which I think you can also get in the public domain. It was with a PBS. Um, I forgot what the, the, um, the subtitle was, but you can you know, see that. And I think you'll, you can come to appreciate just the greatness of who he was. Now he actually was interviewed later in life about his craft. Um, unlike Chaplin and uh, Harold Lloyd, there isn't that much record of them actually speaking about movie making. And Keaton, people got a hold of him in the late 50s and early 60s and interviewed him. And he was able to look back 
at what had occurred, you know, 30, 40 years earlier. And you can hear him speak about all the intricacies of what he did and how he did it. The main thing, however, was the gag, the idea of the gag, the what you're not, what happens, what you don't expect, something that you haven't seen before, something that is unusual and different. What we would call the the inspiring brilliance. That's what Keaton was always, you know, zeroing in on, and that's something that. With with all those interviews, he had a certain another to him that that you know Chaplin was very self-aggrandizing. You read his autobiography; he he was very grandiose. He he really saw himself as being very great. And you, you you watch Buster Keaton talk; he he's very humble. He's very well. He was well, he was always that way, and he was yeah. humbled by life. Unfortunately, uh, we've talked about it in the past. The type of roles he had to take in the late forties. Again, the team up again. The, the American Masters program illustrates this, but I can't think of anything as ugly and disgusting as uh, you know whoever, whatever studio it was, the thought that Keaton and Durante would make this incredible team together, where and they, they wanted to turn them into the next great comedy team. It you know, was Keaton, MGM. MGM, come on! You, you, you're taking almost the uh, two two people that are the ultimate antithesis. One is a subtle comedic genius. The other is in your face, Mrs. Carabash. But but they, but that's what he was stuck with: talkies and the inability of uh, of the people who ran the studios, many of them Jews, unfortunately, to see the brilliance of Keaton and to use his technical understanding of the gag. That is what you ended up with these sophomoric ridiculous comedies and other things that, that Keaton had to, to suffer through. And you can see that it wore on his face and really was responsible. I'm not saying that he wasn't a modest person, but life really threw him into a, a, a great pit. And I know he, he, yeah, and he, that's how he started off. That's why he was Buster. His father used to throw him around. because he, he Yes. Him. Right. And he fell on, fell on his head. He knew how to take a fall, but you know, again, I think he fell into, um, uh, alcoholism and other things that were unfortunately, uh, you know, you know, made a little bit of a. Uh, to me, I'll always remember him from a funny thing that happened on the way to the forum. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film, but I'm sure you're familiar with the with yeah, the stage yeah, I've play. Seen it. Yeah, I, I, I saw the film. Right, yeah. and of course, but you know, and, and, and it starred at the time. You know, the creme de la creme of 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 Hollywood and television comedy. Uh, Jack Guilford, of course, and uh, Phil, Phil Silver. Silver. Phil, again, we're talking the Jews here. Zira Mostel, Phil Silvers. They could have. Uh, there was definitely a minion uh, on site, and and they gave uh, Buster Keaton uh, this role. You know, uh, I think he's always running around the Seven Hills of Rome or something like that. Um, and that that is actually, I think, the first film I ever saw Keaton, and then I became interested. In it. Okay, that's your choice. The Playhouse, available uh, uh, anywhere. Uh, you can get a YouTube connection. I want to suggest something which I think is also um, available on YouTube, uh, but I saw it, uh, kudos to you, thanks to the Criterion channel, uh, which was uh, Robert Mitchum in, uh, in Jane Greer, not in Out of the Past, which is, of course, the film noir that they're very, uh, everyone knows them from, but from something that was uh, uh, done, I think it was, uh, again, it was RKO, it was called The Big Steel. And just like the other film I'm going to mention a little bit later, this was a film that uh, took advantage of what was clear after the war. Let, let, let me explain things. I know it's like you like, uh, you, under, you demanded was very little location shooting. 
there was di- there was difficulty in traveling. Uh, there was there was limited funds. Uh, the studios, of course, were were the the sound stages of the studios, of course, were brilliant and and lit. But it didn't look anything at all like the real world, right? None of the none of the apartment houses in those in those screwball comedies looked anything of like real apartments looked like. There was no verite in it. In fact, it was all an escape. World War II and the films that came after them pushed a lot of directors to go out on location and to actually use the locations in an interesting way, not, not just to create a travelogue, but actually to weld the location into the story. In this case, uh, Don Siegel, a nice Jewish fellow, um, didn't, of course, live as a religious Jew in any way, shape, or form, but Don Siegel, one of the premier uh, directors of the, of the 60s and 70s, of course, uh, uh, you, of course, uh, are, are very thankful that he made um, the... Um, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which, of course, was his film. But Don Siegel made this film, I think it was 1948 or 49, uh, called The Big Steel. And it's all, it deals with, and it uses Mexico as a character. Now, someone who, who's, uh, John Houston, of course, uses Mexico as sort of like a backdrop to the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, but Mexico takes on sort of like a demonic presence there, um, uh, in a similar fashion, Orson Welles uses Mexico, and I've talked about this in, in, in Touch of Evil. This film, Don Siegel's film, which doesn't have any of those pretensions, but really, I think, gives you a sense of the Mexican character. It gives you a sense of the difference, the subtle difference between, this, between ver- Mexicans of various income classes, but also the, the very stark difference between Mexicans and Americans. Um, people speak, uh, although the, one of the main Mexican characters is trying to learn English, and this was always a plot device, so you didn't have to have subtitles. And, you know, this is what they always did, you know, speak English, I want to speak English, you know, they, they made sure to insert that into the, into the script. So this way, the American audience, you know, who didn't know Spanish could understand things, but there is a lot of Spanish being spoken in the film. And it was filmed on location in Veracruz and in Tehuacan. And it's basically a chase. It's an, it's a very exciting chase that you, you start getting off the ship in Veracruz, and all of a sudden it's got Mitchum against William Bendix. And William Bendix, of course, was a was a really uh, important character actor uh, in the in the 40s. He was an incredibly popular radio uh, star, as you know, The Life of Riley, which became a television program in the 50s. Uh, and Bendix, uh, you know, did a, a heart-wrenching turn, of course, in Hitchcock's Lifeboat. But he was a very well-known character actor, Bendix. Very, very, you know, he was someone who was like a meat and potatoes guy that every, everybody liked. Very unique, a distinct character. And Mitchum, of course, was the ultimate cool. And it's Bendix after Mitchum, after some other low life. And it's all about, uh, you know, some $300,000, which was a tremendous amount of money, uh, amount of money that was stolen from the army. And basically, it's just like Bullet and the French Connection, but 20 years earlier. Chase scene after chase scene, the cars are, 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 and and again, considering, you know, I think Keaton himself would have been impressed by the trick photography, because they actually filmed on some of these precarious, uh, dangerous Mexican highways, and it isn't just silly. There's also a point to it, the point of, of greed. There's a point of, 
of of recognizing um, you know Americans American sense of superiority uh, to the Mexican culture. And, and, and really how the Mexican culture is really in many ways more religious and in many ways more um, noble and, 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 and something that can give a strength uh, to a sense of family. You know, there's a, um, you also get, as I said, a sense of a, of a, of a country that's on the cusp of uh, of what we would call modernism of, of modernizing their roads and yet there's still donkeys and cows and chickens all over the place along with highways that they're building so i think it really gives you a, a sense of another place and also the contrast uh, uh, the, the sort of like the the gritty aggressive americans versus the mexicans but also um you you get the excitement of uh, of who is this guy? What has he done? Why is he on the run? Is he a, is Mitchum a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Um, Jane Greer, uh, who plays you know the, the the love interest, is also you know joins up with Mitchum, and um, I think I told you when I mentioned I was going to uh, rec- recommend this film. There's a, a wonderful scene where um, you know Jane Greer, who obviously had to learn Spanish. Uh, at least a decent level in order to to do this role. Um, She has an interaction with uh, a Mexican road boss. And it's just such a wonderful, sweet scene uh, that ends with uh, extolling the idea of parenthood uh, and how beautiful that is and how sometimes there's certain universal um, uh, aspects, whether it's romance and love, that are able to crack the the uh the boundaries between cultures and Yitzhak 71 minutes around and the show is over also it's got one of my favorite characters besides Bendix that's John Quaylen and John Quaylen as you know uh, uh was a specialist in doing a um a Scandinavian accent he always plays a Scandinavian immigrant over here he's got his usual um, his actual American voice and uh he he has he does a very surprising turn in this role as well. Really, it's called The Big Steel. Okay, Yitzchak, what's your second film? Out of all of those films, uh, I enjoy all of them. And uh, But there's probably, again, the pinnacle of all of them would have to be The Bride of Frankenstein. That's, I think, universally recognized as Universal's... Uh, the greatest horror, the greatest horror film that that came out of that studio. Yeah, and and it's not you know it's not a traditional horror film. It's not a a scary film. It's not. Uh, it's really uh, quite uh, avant garde and somewhat uh, you know uh, it deals with a lot of issues uh, under the surface. Uh, you know the the undertones of various sexual issues and certainly. James Whale's uh, homosexuality is is a theme that was discussed in the in the, the movie Gods and Monsters that was you know talking about you know reflecting on the making of of this film uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Let me interrupt you just for one second. I think our yeah. our listeners need to realize that of course Mary in uh, the original Frankenstein from thirty one was really just like the Dracula from thirty one was not really based directly from Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. The 1931 uh, film Frankenstein 
even though it was suggested by Mary Shelley's uh, novel, but it really both of those films were more based on plays that, that were popular based on the films. Uh, in, in a certain sense... But the, the idea of creating a bride for the monster, was that something, think, that, was that something that Shelley had ever thought of, or was that something I that... Think, I think that was part of the original Frankenstein novel, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. It's been a while since I read it, but wow. I believe in in the movie, it's presented as a, it, it's it's quite an interesting way. You know, the first Frankenstein movie in thirty one starts off with uh, a man, you know, introducing the film, warning that it it might be too scary for the audience and and so forth. Uh, this one is presented as uh, we were taken to Lord Byron's castle, and and Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley are there. And they're having some kind of a social event, the three of them, and uh, and uh, they they talk about how brilliant and frightening <laughs> Mary's story was of Frankenstein, and she said, "Well, that's not the end of the story." And she I goes see. on that she's actually narrating the story, and it's Elsa Lanchester who plays the monster's bride. Uh, initially uncredited, I think uncredited at the end as well. So El- El- Elsa Lancaster played- actually played Mary Shelley and the and the monster's bride. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so yeah. she she had both parts. I hear. Yeah. I don't think I mean, she. Uh, that was definitely the pinnacle of. Uh, that's the greatest thing she ever did. I mean, I saw Elsa. I've seen Elsa Lancaster in many many uh, bit parts and many films, including Witness for the Prosecution, of course. Uh, and uh, you know where she uh, has probably one of her largest roles, but I think she'll always be remembered for uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Um, yeah. well, well, I didn't re- I, I didn't realize that she actually is the narrator of the film in some ways. Yeah, even though it does, it's not something that continues throughout the film the way that you know some narrators do in other films, it just it's how it opens up. But it is that essentially that she's narrating this. But it is it is I think in a certain sense based on the original Frankenstein book. Oh, okay, so, so so we know the original Frankenstein, Yitzchak, of course, deals with issues that even, uh, which we are still dealing with today, which is what is life? What does it mean to create life? What are the boundaries of our uh, scientific uh, reach? Uh, does Is Bride of Frankenstein, you think, dealing with similar issues or or it's going other places? Uh, well, that's uh, that's the primary theme of Bride of Frankenstein because the original Frankenstein you only have the one creation and you know there there was certainly the scandal and it was removed from most versions of the film where he says you know something somewhat blasphemous you know now now i know what it feels like to be god and that had to be taken out of taken out of the film uh and was was not restored for a long time uh in this in this movie you know that theme uh, james whale i think once he had his Hatzlocha with the initial Frankenstein that he also that he also directed, uh, he was able to take things in a, in a total in a much more much more unique direction, much more uh, self guided direction. He was he didn't have any restraints, and he explored these ideas of creating life uh, using you know parts of uh, I guess uh, alchemy tradition of the homunculus one of the the one of the more colorful characters in the film is a dr pretorius who you know when he in this scene he actually puts on some kind of a skull cap i don't 
I don't know if he's meant to be Jewish or if the skull, you know, the skull cap is not necessarily a yarmulke, but he he puts on this this yarmulke and then he shows Dr. Frankenstein some small creations that he had made uh, in a jar, little humans, and one was a, a king, and one was a bishop, and one was a, and it's a, quite a funny scene. But it's also uh, uh, there. There you have the trick photography. That was what I was kind of alluding to when I spoke about how both films have trick photography. This is really the trick photography part of the film, uh, and it's pr probably my favorite scene of the film. But then you have, you know, just he he. You know, they got if they got in trouble for saying, you know, now I know what it feels like to be God. They go much further where the the monster is essentially being you know, put up on a cross, you know, to be so, somewhat of a, a Christological uh, uh, reference there that the monster is, is this, uh, is, you know, kind of like the, the you know, the suffering servant type of a, uh, an archetype that he's, you know, he's, he's innocent and he's being blamed for something that, that, that he's, he shouldn't be being killed for and that type of a thing. And so they really push the buttons there, but it's it it goes into this question of life and death, and in, in the end, you know, the uh, the the monster is so horrified by the fact that this bride that that Frankenstein and Pretorius created for him rejects him, and then he he realizes that you know if he comes from the dead. He says, you know, him and the and the and the bride that was created for him. He said, "We belong dead," and that's really how it ends off. But then he says that the Pretorius also belongs dead; that he's not really part of them. There, you know, there's some question as to whether that is also a reference to, to uh, you know, the the fact that uh, if, if someone is. Uh, is uh, go, uh, conducting themselves in the manner that that the Torah calls Tayeva, There's no Toloda from that. There's you know there's there's nothing that comes out of that, and that's kind of what it means. Like we belong dead. So in other words, so, since because there was no way they could actually procreate and and give life to each other, uh, a sexual union between the two is itself an abomination. Although and, that's and and, and and but Pretorius is also kind of being presented as some somewhat of a gay character as as being being oh, well himself. Yeah, I see. Um, you know, I, I can tell you, you know, from my recollection of the film, I haven't seen it in in, in, in ages, but um, my recollection of the film is that it's funny. It, it is actually great. it has a lot of humor in it. It real and it's not just unintended humor, like seeing old oh, movies. There is, this this is a humor. It's very intensely funny. It's yes. not. It's not a scary movie at all. It's more of a. It's it's just incredibly entertaining. The whole movie and it moves along so quickly. You don't you don't feel bogged down like the first Frankenstein movie. Kind of has some slow move moments in it, and yeah, so no, do the the other movies. This I think one, this is. I think this is an example Yitzchok of of the rare sequel, which is actually superior. Uh, to the original film, you know, it yeah, doesn't happen that often. Um, but I, I think the the series went through a severe decline after the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, oh yeah, the, it, 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 anything I, that came I, after that, anything that came after that was 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 just garbage. It was really just you know, let's make I mean, some money. It wasn't, 
wasn't garbage, but it wasn't it wasn't Bride of Frankenstein. Yitzchak, you know what I mean. Yitzchak, I'm not insult. I don't want to insult yeah. your babies. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. it would, compared to what they had reached with Bride of Frankenstein, the rest was just I mean, churning out stuff. To, yeah, to, to make but money. the truth is, you know, when when you come to Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, Bela Lugosi playing Igor in those films, really, he those were probably Lugosi's greatest roles as the Igor character, and that. That was a, perhaps I would say the redeeming okay. quality of the subsequent films, but the um, you know the, at oh, least the cool. two. Then maybe once you get to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, it's not a it's not a an, again it's not a horrible movie. It's it's very well done for what it is, but it's not it's not the masterpiece that Bride of Frankenstein is. It doesn't Bride of Frankenstein kind of stands out as almost being separate from all the other Frankenstein movies that it's it's a it's a it's a movie and it's almost its own genre it's not like it doesn't fit into anything else because it's not really a comedy as much as it's funny it's not really a horror movie it's definitely a monster movie but it's not a typical monster movie and and perhaps the most you know the the pathos of the hermit who who befriends the monster teaches him how to speak and uh, yeah, the, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein was it was very much the inspiration, and I know I know I don't know if you've seen it or you know about it, but of course Mel Brooks's uh, 1974 Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, which basically <laughs> rips it rips Bride of Frankenstein off, you know, uh, right and left. I mean, it, it takes well, also Son of Frankenstein, all of them, but it, it they uh, the one interesting thing about uh, Mel Brooks's film is that he actually use the original sets that were used in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, all the electrical equipment and everything that was invented and was not really part of the original story that, that Mary Shelley wrote. Yeah. <clears throat> it was something that Universal created, uh, all of these wonderful, you know, laboratory sets and, yes. and, and Mel Brooks used, reused them, the original. Yeah, it, uh, definitely a, a love letter in many ways. And again, we, Madeline Kahn, oh. Unfortunately, she she left us much too young. But uh, Elsa Lancaster had a very good Mamala Mokleim in Madeline Kahn playing the uh, the new bride of Frankenstein. Just a, a really great turn. If anybody would like to see that as a double feature, definitely will uh, tickle your funny bone and fancy. I want to end tonight with my second pick, which is also a film that was built on being set on location. Now it's interesting. It was, it's, 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 it's a message film. It's a film that we would have loved to discuss on our other podcast about criminal justice reform. And in fact, the case that it's based on is pointed to regularly as what a, a great state's attorney needs to do. What real justice is, is not convicting people, but for justice to happen the name of the film it's really a very weird name that it has it's boomerang from 1947 uh it's one of elia kazan's first important features if not his first he might have done something beforehand uh and it has in it really such a you know a great uh, uh amount of, of of characters in it the lead to me is is the is the sorriest part of the of the program uh dana andrews is is the lead but it's got lee jacob as a um, as the chief of police, it also has um, uh, Carl Malden unbilled as as his uh, as as his number one detective. It also has Sam Levine, uh, who we all know is one of the great Jewish uh, uh, um, bit players. Uh, he was, of course, was the Jewish victim in Crossfire and other things like that. Always, you know, playing a uh, 
you know, a, a, a reporter who wants to get to the truth. Um, it also has in it uh, another Jewish actress who uh, was actually at a pretty, a pretty large role. I'm sure you've heard of her, Kara uh, uh, Williams, who uh, um, was in, um, uh, she's still alive, 96 years old. And she actually was nominated for an Oscar in The Defiant Ones. But she plays a um, sort of like a trampy uh, waitress here in this film. Uh, she does a great turn in Jane Wyatt. Uh, was was all right in it. So the the, the people that are in it uh, are, are really I don't know if you would call them a listers, but people who later uh, at Begley Senior, who later you know really made names for themselves in very serious roles. Uh, nobody here is a piker in this film, and 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 and, and part of what the film uh, prided itself on was that they wanted to reenact as much as possible an actual event, a murder that had occurred in 1924 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, there was a, a scandal when a priest was shot down in cold blood. And there was a person, a, a, a person who they found uh, in a city nearby in Norwalk, I think it was, who was arrested for the murder. But he was only arrested because of the pressure that was brought upon the police and the, and the administration to find someone. There was such an outrage that a person should be murdered, a priest should be murdered walking down the street at night, that there needed to be found a, a perpetrator brought to trial. And the person that was brought to trial in 1924 was a person named Harold Israel. Um, and uh, through the fact that he was subjected to nights of sleeplessness and pushed around by the police and probably beaten as well, um, uh, he signed a confession. And it was this signed confession uh, paired with what was considered very primitive ballistic work in 1924 that made people think that this was an open and shut case. And the state's attorney who argued in this case and seemingly was going to prosecute him and finally bring this terrible person to justice, re-looked at the evidence, uh, went through his own scientific discoveries and determined that boomerang, as the title is, that it's actually not where you're going. He's actually going to argue for the charges to be dropped against this person. Um, and this story actually happened. Uh, the the, the uh, state's prosecutor, uh, the county prosecutor in Fairfield County in, in Connecticut, who had, uh, was in charge of this case, was a person by the name of Homer Cummings. Homer Cummings, uh, because of the notoriety he achieved, that he was willing to stand up to the political bosses, that he was willing to do something so unpopular for the sake of justice, uh, came under, uh, was now in the sights of, of, of FDR. Now, they were both very wealthy people coming from wealthy, uh, rich families, but FDR uh, picked him uh, in 1932, uh, 1933, actually, to be his attorney general. So um, this was a, a story that was, uh, had a great amount of notoriety. And uh, at the time, it propelled him to uh, this, this this state where he was actually uh, working in tandem and actually helping craft the FBI the way we know it. It wasn't even called the FBI back then, but the the, this, the Justice Department's police hands um, were, was all under the auspices of, of, of Homer Cummings. Well, Homer Cummings' story, um, uh, 
Homer, Homer decided as in 1924 to not press charges against uh, Israel. Israel was free. He went on to have uh, a decent type of life, but a life that was still steeped in poverty and difficulty. And Cummings kept up with him throughout the years. Now, uh, in 1945, a Reader's Digest article uh, revisited this case. And once again, people, you know, those days, people, everybody read Reader's Digest. Today, some people read it and some people throw it out and, you know, they look at the jokes. At that time, Reader's Digest was one of the most uh, read magazines uh, in the United States. And there was original material in there as well. And one of this original material was a revisiting of this story. Well, um, the, the studios, 20th Century Fox, I guess it was, uh, was very um, excited about this story and wanted to turn it into uh, uh, turn it into a movie. And um, they, uh, Cummings was uh, reached out to. And in those days, it's interesting that even when they made a biopic, unless it was exactly about the person, they changed things. You know, they changed the names. They, you know, they altered things for dramatic effect. So it wasn't really the story of Cummings anymore, although it was based on his story. And he was able... Uh, to get for Israel and his family a tremendous amount of money for those days of, of eighteen thousand dollars for for the rights of his story, and this was right after World War II. Um, and as I said, they wanted to go on location. Bridgeport refused to allow um, them film there. I don't know why. Maybe they were embarrassed that the, that was never solved. So they filled in Stamford, Connecticut. Of course, the site of one of the great from hotels that uh, Dirsch was going to have their convention there. You know, a film on location in Stanford. Um, and I, you know, they wanted to use the courthouse. They wanted to use the streets. They wanted to use the diners there. They wanted to use the newspaper offices. Uh, they were obsessed, really, with the idea that we're going to film this, even though it didn't happen in, in Stanford. But it's, we're going to use a real city in Connecticut and the people because they wanted it to be a story that the people could could resonate. And of course, the story was that people assume the worst and people are sometimes pushed to, to want to find a perpetrator. And they don't realize the courage that it takes to stand up to, to that type of pressure. So of course, in the film, um, the character is the names are changed. He's not. He's younger. Uh, he has a very. Uh, he has a, a different type of family situation. But the point is, the ma- the basic aspect of the story uh, was preserved, um, and uh, you know the it was interesting that the I don't know how the history of the Cannes Film Festival, but uh, they were so proud of this film that they submitted it to Khan as a, a, a work of important art uh, because it was it, it, it has a certain crackerjack pace to it, but it actually it, it, it underscores a very key lesson of, of innocence and of uh, the American system uh, of justice. It celebrates the courage of people. It, it, it reveals the underbelly of of corruption in some way, but it gives a lot of strength towards uh, the positive. Uh, I think that the the the, the role of the uh, of the vagrant or the person they pick up is played by the real. I think he's one of the most underappreciated actors of the 40s and 50s, Arthur Kennedy. 
I, I don't know if you uh, you agree with me, Yitzhak, but I think Arthur Kennedy, I, I don't think Arthur Kennedy ever turned in a bad performance. He is, uh, he, he just, he represents every man in such a, like, a, like in such a real way. You know, he, he sort of has what Van, you know what, Arthur Kennedy had what Van Heflin had when he started out, <laughs> but unfortunately lost. Arthur Kennedy always had it. He was sort of like a mix between Van Heflin and Joseph Cotton. He's, he, he does, he does a, a great job as the, um, as the victim and as someone, again, not a great person, but a person who doesn't even, is not even able to articulate what he really wants out of life. They turn him into a war veteran. And there's a little bit of a message about war veterans not being able to, uh, to be able to acclimate themselves in the world. But I think it's a, um, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a message film, but it's not, it's not heavy handed. Um, it has, uh, it, it draws your interest. Uh, you might know the history and therefore say, well, he's going to get him off at the end. And you sort of figure that, but, but Kazan and his screenwriters keep you guessing about how, that's going to happen. Uh, by the way, also uh, in the film, the, the, the city that we live in isn't exactly the most neighborly welcoming place. And that it's not necessarily moved to mob violence, but many times um, we as a community fail when we rush to judgment. So that's Boomerang, which I think is um, definitely a, a worthwhile uh, uh, it's worth it to see because I think it's it's overlooked when we think about Kazan. Of course, Kazan, you know, was infamous, as you know, Yitzchok, for for naming names at the House on American uh, committee meetings, um, and he was in many ways despised uh, for what he did later. But I think we have to mention, of course, because after he made uh, Gentleman's Agreement, right. and um, and I, I think that you'll you'll agree, the Gentleman's Agreement is a is a very important film for Hollywood to have made. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a film that, um, so. I think it uh, was the same year. Wasn't it the same year? Was Boomerang and, and Gentleman's Agreement the same weren't year? They both, weren't they both 47? Uh, it's, you know, again, I don't have the, I, I don't have the page in front of me, but yeah, I think both, and, 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 and most people remember, you know, Gentleman's Agreement, of course, won the Oscar uh, for Best Picture. It was a great message about anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. They were both 47. Right. I, I, I actually believe that, um, you know, though, I think Boomerang is, is a more interesting film. Uh, I think Boomerang has a, um, it has a, you know, again, Gregory Peck, look, Gregory Peck and Dana Andrews, neither of them are going to win, you know, kudos as being the most animated and uh, great performers. I think, um, and I think both of those, you know, if you haven't seen Gentleman's Agreement, you should definitely uh, see it because it definitely tells you about what was going on in the um, uh, in the state of what was the state of anti-Semitism in the United States during that period. Um, you got John Garfield willing to take on a um, a, uh, a supporting role. You know that, right? Right. You know yeah. John Garfield. Um, you, know, he, you know he was very picky about which films that he he was taking by that time. But he understood how important it was uh, that that America know that besides the, even though that the so many of the movie moguls were Jewish, there was you know and the the, the and even though this was post World War II, that anti-Semitism in America 
was still a major uh, stumbling block and it was still a, a very ugly thing that needed to be uh, dealt with and eradicated. And, you know, uh, Gentlemen's Agreement definitely uh, did it head on. You know, Elie Kazan, of course, came himself from an ethnic group from New York. From- Friends, that's it. So watch your step on the way out. We'll see you. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.